Our scripture reading this afternoon, congregation, comes from first, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 5. <clears throat> Second Corinthians uh, chapter 5, <clears throat> reading at uh, verse 14 to 17. Verse 14 to 17 of Second Corinthians chapter 5. And then also turning briefly to chapter 7. God's holy word from the Apostle Paul to his church. Chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of God controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In verse 17, especially we focus on as we consider Lord's Day 33. And then we turn to chapter 7, reading at verse 9. Sorry, no, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6, through uh, verse 10. But God, who comforts the downcast, uh, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you, grieve, made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you're, you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And this too will be our focus. Verse 10, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then to the words of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is Psalm of David. After he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, we read the first of 13 verses of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Thus far we read from Holy Scripture. And then also I would have you join with me turning to Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where we will focus on questions 88 to 90. In question 91, we will keep uh, Lord willing for next week, Sunday afternoon's uh, service as well. So we'll focus on question 88 to 90 of Lord's Day 33. Question 88, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old man? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God, and to his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. God's word summarized for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Dear brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if Christianity does not really make a difference in our life, if it doesn't really change us, then I would submit to you that Christianity is no different than any other kind of religion. Every other kind of religion might inspire you to become a a better person, but it will not make you a new person. And there's an infinite difference between simply being a better person compared to being a brand new person. Believing in Jesus Christ's congregation brings a radical change in a person's life. Already noted back in Lord's Day 32, when we uh, first learn about what it is to be delivered from a misery, It says there that Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit. Something radically new happens to us that we did not experience before. We are renewed after the image of Christ. And so we're dealing, congregation, this afternoon with the powerful effect of God's grace. And that introduces us to the subject of true repentance, as we have it there as stated in Lord's Day 33, true repentance or, or true conversion by which we are able to please God and to live uh, producing good works. A converse, uh, con- conversion produces a life congregation that is so radically new and different from that of unbelief. It enables us to live a life that is pleasing unto God. A life of gratitude, as this section of the catechism begins. A life of gratitude in which we live to, to turn away from our sin 
and to begin a life of joy and gladness and obedience to Jesus Christ because he has delivered us of all our sin. So our theme this afternoon, true conversion, is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. As we look at the Catechism's teaching, we note, first of all, the experience of true conversion, that first, and then secondly, the twofold aspect of that true repentance or conversion. Question 88 asks, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? And the answer, it is the dying of the old nature, and it is the coming to life of the new. Notice the present tense there of the language. It speaks of the dying of something, and then the coming to life of something else. Two things, but stated in the present tense to let us know that they are an ongoing phenomena or a spiritual experience that we go through and participate in um, uh, from day to day. Now, of course, we know the Bible teaches very, very clearly the fact that being born again is a one-time experience where we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus, by God's grace, also experienced that. And uh, in that regeneration, we are, of course, entirely passive. We can't do anything to cause ourselves to be born again. Entirely the work of the Holy Spirit, it, it is. But the Bible also speaks about the ongoing effect of that regeneration. And that is the, the subject of Lord's Day uh, 88 and following, though not to the exclusion of also teaching of first being born again. And as we consider these things, it is good to listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 or 17, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is a newness that the Christian experiences that is so radically different from what an unbeliever could ever possibly experience. There's, there's no comparison between the two. Uh, you are born again, the unbeliever is not. Now, this does not mean, of course, that you as a Christian cease from sin, because as we will see this afternoon, we are constantly needing to be putting to death that old nature, that old man, and to constantly be also putting on that new nature. We engage, however, in a spiritual reality, a spiritual experience, something that the unbeliever simply does not have, but we do by God's grace. And this is not something that we kind of just sit back and watch and look at as if we were spectators. No, we are actively engaged in this whole spiritual reality of true repentance or of, uh, of that daily conversion. Paul says that we are a new creation in Christ, and that the old things, or that old within us has passed, and he says, behold, all things have become new. Now that old nature, that old, those old things in us, of course, refer to the, um, the sinful nature that we inherited from Adam. Paul says that by God's grace, 
is dying away. And we know what that's about, don't we? Because we also are each day, even moment by moment, I trust, putting that to death. Denying those sinful desires that just creep up automatically into our hearts, into our heads, upon our minds, and, and become part of our wills. We have to be putting that to death and simultaneously putting on this new nature. And it is radically new, radically different. There's something in you that you are, that you have, that the unbeliever simply does not have. He's still dead in his sin. You are not. He's still enslaved to all his sinful passions. You, by God's grace, are not. You actually are fighting against them, Meanwhile, the unbeliever is enjoying those sinful experiences and desires very much. He thinks it's just plain fine to enjoy the sinful lusts and pleasures that well up within his heart. For you, it becomes something that is ultimately disgusting and you want to cut yourself off from because it, is, it really is opposed to what you now are in Christ as a, as a, as a Christian, as a person who is born again. Paul, indeed, speaks about the dying of the old and the coming to life of the new. And he illustrates that going back to uh, verse 15 of chapter 5 when he says, He, Jesus, he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and and was raised. The experience of true conversion, congregation, this experience of true repentance, is an experience in which we daily live no longer simply for ourselves. And that's perhaps one of the best things that describes an unbeliever. I don't care what kind of unbeliever you're talking about, whether he's a Hindu or a Buddhist or an atheist, it doesn't matter. He still is living simply for himself. His own selfish desires dictate, I must live for myself, I must gratify myself, and I'm really finally the only one that matters in the world. I live for myself, he lives foolishly for himself, he's full of his own pride. He wants to do his own thing. He's the judge that determines what is right or wrong as far as he is concerned. But Paul says in verse 15, he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves. That sets you apart as an unbeliever, but you begin to live for the one who died and rose for you, Paul says. And how in the world can we do that but unless we are a new creation, unless we are brand new people in Christ? Paul says, the old has gone, behold, the new has come. A reality congregation that we experience It's part of our Christian experience. Compared to the unbeliever, you have a brand new orientation in life. You really do know the Lord God, you do. And it is your desire to please him. You do really love Jesus Christ, his son, whom he has sent. And you seek to serve him, come what may. You know the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Lord and your Savior. The unbeliever does not know God at all. And he couldn't care less if he didn't know about God. His orientation is still to himself. It's still to his money. 
It's still to his own attitudes and to his own pleasures and to this world. His life is still ultimately about himself. And so he simply cannot worship God. He can't. And of course he won't until he is born again. But we, by God's grace, are different people. The very fact that you worship God in spirit and in truth is part of your experience of your conversion. I'm not meaning when you first were converted, but that daily experience which flows out of being born again when you first were. The experience of true conversion has at its center the worship of the living God. And that already sets you apart radically from the unbeliever. And so believers, congregation, already in this life, by God's grace, know within themselves the dying of that old nature, that old nature that really wanted to have nothing to do with God and to refuse to worship him absolutely. That's dying away. That's going and ultimately gone. And in replacement, we have the coming to life of the new self. You have a new reason to live, being born again. Part of your experience of conversion is that you have brand new laws of God that you want to keep, those holy Ten Commandments. And you have been given a new obedience by the Spirit of God to begin to do His will. You are part of a brand new community called the Church of Jesus Christ. The unbeliever, he's got none of these things. Those are, he still is part of those old things of his life when he only lived for self. You have something brand new in your heart. You have a comfort that passes understanding. You are assured of everlasting life and of an eternal inheritance waiting for you in the heavens. The unbeliever does not know what you're talking about when you speak of those things. He still is part of that old self. You have a new joy in your soul, Christ within you. You have a peace with God the unbeliever knows nothing about. The old things have not passed away from him at all. He still serves himself. He still loves his sins. He's still got all his idols. He still has no interest in God. He's got no interest in Christ's church whatsoever. He's got no interest in talking about the truth. Like Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? Well, Pilate couldn't care less what the truth was. He was still within that old self, that old nature. The unbeliever has no interest in, in salvation. You do. And it's of these things that the Apostle Paul speaks when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new, the new self, the new man, which is in Jesus Christ. But now let us see, secondly, congregation, what exactly this experience of true conversion or true repentance actually consists of. What does it look like? Question uh, 89 asks, what is the dying of the old nature? And question 90 says, 
What is the coming to life of the new nature? We note, secondly, this true repentance or conversion has a a twofold aspect to it. It's a complementary spiritual reality that we experience in our life all the time that we're believers. What does it really feel like or look like? Well, like the Catechism says, it is first to grieve with a heartfelt sorrow that we've offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and flee from it. And second, it's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ with a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. A twofold aspect that is, uh, is what this true conversion and repentance consists of. Again, there's that complementary phenomena going on in our lives. And the one simply cannot be without the other, out the other but they both go together. Well, the first aspect, congregation, dealing with the dying of the old man, that old nature, deals with simply being genuinely sorry for all your sins. The catechism says there's a heartfelt sorrow. We have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it and to flee from it. An older version of the catechism says there's a heartfelt sorrow that we have provoked God by our sin. Now that word sorrow or sorry, it's all from the same root as the word sorrowful. It all speaks about that experience that we have when we know that we've sinned against God. Let's say we've, we've given a big mouth to our employer or we've cheated somebody else or we've mistreated someone in a, in a, in a disrespectful way. We've sinned against our spouse. We've sinned against our children. We've offended our neighbor. What is the result then, being, being that new man in Christ? While well, we have a heartfelt sorrow over our sin. We actually regret what we did. We feel bad about it. We wish we had never done it. And it brings a sense of, of guilt and, uh, and of shame and of grief and of sadness and even tears. Sometimes it's really good that we cry over our sin because we've offended God so much, we've, we've hurt our neighbor so much, the best thing to do is to cry and to be sorrowful over our sin. And that is what that experience of true repentance and conversion looks like. We realize with a guilty conscience we can only do one thing, and that is say, I'm sorry for my sin and confess before God what we've done and to the person whom we have wronged. That first. But let's say you didn't realize your sin, or you weren't really aware of it, or perhaps you were hiding your sin, and someone had to point it out to you. Then what do you do? Like Nathan the prophet to David, then what do you do? Well, if you are that new man, that new woman in Christ, and you will acknowledge that sin, you will say, yes, I have sinned against that person, I have sinned against God, and I will confess my sin because I must, because I am that new person in Christ. And you are able to because you are a new creation. You see, that's how that experience of true repentance and conversion actually works itself out in your life. It is something you experience. You don't just watch at a distance and say, well, That's the experience of those people, but that's not mine. 
No, it can't be that way if you are a Christian. Or let's say, thirdly, if you are not genuinely sorry for your sin and you don't hate your sin and you don't run away from it, as the Catechism says we must, but if we don't do that, then you may very well question, am I indeed a Christian? Am I that new creation? Have those old things really passed away from me? Or am I still that sinful person who loves my sin and I'm not going to part with it? Then you may well wonder, am I a new creature in Christ? If that old nature still rules me. Well, if it is, then you must be aware of one thing, that that old nature is going to be producing death in you. For sure. You can count on it. That's what Paul goes on to teach in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 and 9, where he says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And here's the thing, he says, For godly grief produces repentance. That leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly sorrow, I'm sorry for my sins, O God. I'm sorry I've offended you, you say to your brother or your parent or whoever. Expressing that godly sorrow indicates you are on that road that leads to heavenly glory and salvation. But if you only are engaged in a worldly kind of grief or sorrow, Paul says that leads that leads to death. Now I've seen believer, unbelievers experiencing a whole lot of misery and grief over their sin and suffering terribly because of their sin but they do not repent. And that's because there is no godly sorrow or grief in their hearts. Yes, they suffer big time too, especially when they get caught and their life is full of misery. But there's no godly sorrow, no sense in which they have offended God. But with you, by God's grace as a Christian, it is entirely different. It's supposed to be. You have a godly sorrow. You know you have offended your master, your creator, your redeemer. You've offended your spouse. You've offended your colleague at work. And and you regret it deeply. And you say, I am sorry for what I did to you. I'm sorry for how I handled this situation, for what I stole, what I cheated on, what I did wrong. I, I confess my sin. I've offended my God. And I want to get right with God again and with my neighbor That's godly sorrow, Paul says. That leads to salvation. And perhaps what better passage of Scripture could we turn to to see the illustration of godly sorrow but what we read in Psalm 51 when David was confronted by Nathan. Psalm 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. That's godly sorrow, isn't it? 
David could have never penned these words if he had no godly sorrow for his sin when he committed adultery and murder. He says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me of my sin. There was a godly sorrow that convicted his heart. He knew by God's grace he had to do this. He had to repent. He had to cry out to God, cleanse me from my my sin. And then he adds verse 3, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Godly sorrow is right there. And verse 4, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your words and you are blameless when you judge. He says, God, you are absolutely blameless when you judge me. God, your words are absolutely right to me when you convince me and convict me of my sin. That takes godly sorrow. And this is what our conversion and true repentance looks like. This is how it is carried out and acted out within our lives by ourselves. We know King David hated his sin and he ultimately ran away from his sin and he pleaded God for forgiveness and David was restored. Brothers and sisters, does that describe you as well? Or might you be perhaps too proud to confess your sin. I know what that's like. Or might you be too stubborn uh, to confess your sin? Or perhaps thought your sin was really no big deal at all. You wanted to save your own skin. You didn't feel you could come to that point and say, I am sorry. Or have you not hated your sin enough to run away from it? I think some of the hardest words in the English language to say is I am sorry for my sin. You say that to your husband or to your child or to your friend at school, to your boss, to a sibling. I'm sorry for what I did to you. I'm sorry, O Lord God in heaven, for offending you. I'm sorry, O God, for having skipped church again because I wanted to do my own thing. I'm sorry, O Lord, because I have not been given faithfully to the offerings of the church. I really am kind of greedy and like to keep my own money. I'm sorry, O God, for my selfishness. I have heartfelt sorrow for being so careless in my life. Blot out my transgressions, O Lord, and cleanse me from my sin. That's the experience of our conversion. Saying such words go against our human nature, but if we are a new creation in Christ, we will, we will say these words. We won't be afraid. We will be man enough, spiritually speaking, to say what needs to be said when we have offended our neighbor and our God. And you know what? Then we experience that true repentance and the fruits of conversion. And what a blessing it is to experience that new life in which we again are forgiven 
our neighbor forgives us and all is well between him and me, him and you, again. But then there's a second aspect to this uh, true conversion and repentance, question 90. It is also the coming to life of the new nature. It says it's a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Here, too, is a spiritual joy that the unbeliever simply cannot share with you. He has no idea what it means to sing for joy in his heart because he knows he has confessed his sin and God has forgiven him. If there's one thing that brings joy in our hearts, it's, it's this kind of a thing, isn't it? This experience of being forgiven, this heartfelt joy we have in God, that he has forgiven us, that he no longer is in judgment against us, but that his favor again is turned toward us. The unbeliever does not know these things. He still rejects God. He still hates God's word. He still is at enmity with God. But you have a heartfelt joy in God, knowing that Jesus Christ has died for you on the cross. Now that is a joyful, liberating thing to experience and to have that new life of the Spirit dwelling within you and to know that guilt no longer is going to destroy you. And that feeling of of guilt being taken away instead of increasing, that brings a joy, a heartfelt joy in God through Christ the unbeliever does not have, but you do. Perhaps you don't always think that that is such a big thing, but when you come to think about it, it sure is. Because this is a matter of life and death, isn't it? When you have this heartfelt joy in God through Christ, that you know your sins are forgiven. And you are comforted with the assurance that heaven is awaiting me instead of hell. Joy, heartfelt joy in Christ that we have. A heartfelt joy that David himself uh, understood when he realized the horror of his sin. And he said in 51 verse 12, to God he writes, and to us, He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David knew that when a person is living in a right relationship with God and his sins are forgiven, that produces joy. But David lost that joy, didn't he? He he wanted it back in his life. And so he, he prays, he writes, he says, restore to me that joy. David knew what the catechism was talking about when the catechism says it is to grieve without... No, it is to have a heartfelt joy in God. That's what David wanted again so desperately. We're going back to verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken may rejoice again. He, under, he knew that too as he, as he wrote from his own experience of being forgiven and receiving again that heartfelt joy of which the catechism speaks. And then very lastly, the catechism also adds what the coming of to life of the new nature is. It is also a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. So true, isn't it? If you delight in the Lord Jesus Christ who saved you and you delight in God your Father who elected you and you rejoice in the Holy Spirit who enabled you to be born again, 
Will you then not also delight in the very law that they have given to us so that we would bear the image of Christ? Of course, of course. If we have been washed by the blood of Christ, how can we not seek to live according to his holy will as well? And by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, as we experience being born again and experiencing that true conversion, why, it is our it is our act of thanksgiving to live according to the will of God in all good works. Again, the unbeliever would not understand what you were talking about. He would not know what good works even are. He would have no delight to live according to God's law. If, if that is what you asked him to do, he would not understand you. He would have no delight to live to God's glory. He would seek to do nothing out of faith because he has none. But we, brothers and sisters, we have a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. And this too is something we experience. We don't just see it happening in other people. We must see it happening in our own life. And thus it is good to take stock, congregation, of our own life from day to day to ask the question, how am I living? Being born again, is that really showing in my life? Do I really have a heartfelt desire to live according to the will of God in all good works? Perhaps it's like asking the question, am I really taking my Christianity seriously? This is not just a game. This is not an act I put on when I maybe go to church or go to visit my parents or my grandparents. But am I living this way every every day? This heartfelt joy in Christ. This love and a delight to live according to God in all good works. And a heartfelt sorrow over my sin that I have offended my God. And that I'm really hating it. I'm really running away from it. We might say, boy, how, how, how are we able? Well, by God's grace, congregation, I started out by saying how true repentance and conversion is a result of the all-powerful, mighty grace of God, the transforming grace of God in our lives so that we become brand new people in Jesus Christ. By his grace, we can begin to live according to the will of God in all good works. Yes, we keep falling short. That's why at the end of the day, literally, we get on our knees and we confess our sins. And to be right with God again before we go to sleep, we fall short. But we do experience this coming to life of the new and this dying of the old. May you seek in the coming week to live for God's glory, remembering who and what you are in Jesus Christ. That you have a God to serve, you have a law to keep, you have a church to be a member of, to serve happily and gladly, delighting in God, delighting in doing what is pleasing in his sight.
Amen.